It's Friday the 22nd of October. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's top headlines. Freak hailstorm in Australia. Revelations about the carbon budgets in Ireland. And we have some build-up to COP26 in Glasgow. And also coming up on this week's show, I chat to Daniel Murray about data centres. Kira Daily begins our sustainable business feature with Fairly. We continue our collaboration with Irish Doctors for Environment with Rachel McCann. And Anna explains the Paris Agreement. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I am Dara Wynn and we have a new episode every Friday throughout October and November bringing you the latest climate news. This week we have interviews with experts, explainers, the Irish Enviro event guide. As always, we start with the weekly news and I'm joined this week by Kira Tiernan and Anna Pringle. And we'll start off, Kira, with some freaky weather down in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. There's some weird weather happening down under. Um, there was freak hailstorms in Queensland um, with hailstones the size of uh, 16 centimetres in diameter. Now, when you think about 16 centimetres in diameter, what comes to mind? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, it's bigger than a tennis ball. Smaller than a football. Mm. Well, but I, about the size of a grapefruit. Okay. Yeah. Well, I actually did cheat and, and do some basic maths to figure out how big that is. Oh, um, and I figured out that's about the size of a size two kids football. Okay. Which maybe is the size of a grapefruit. Yeah. I mean, there's a part in the article that described them as very impressive. Um, I mean, they were <laughs> impressive hailstones. I'm sure they would make a big impression on you if they fell on your head. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, they were making a big impression in Queensland. Um, I've seen pictures of smashed windshields um, in cars, as well as um, a roof in a shopping centre um, uh, falling in because of the heavy, heavy rainfall, which is shocking. Yeah. And just to think of loads of those, it's not just one. It's the fact that a lot of them were 12 to 14 centimeters in diameter. And in terms of what that has to do with climate change, well, hailstorms like that have become more frequent and more severe in the recent past as a result of climate change. And while there is some uncertainty about projections into the future, it looks like there is a strong likelihood that there will be more frequent and more severe hailstorms in Australia and here in Europe. Um, so hopefully what happened down in Australia this week isn't a sign of, what, of things to come here. Hopefully only lime-sized hailstones here. <laughs> <laughs> or just, you know, our normal little small ones are bad enough. Um, but there's a different kind of storm brewing here at the moment, Dara. Um, it's not a hailstorm, but it's the carbon budget storm. Um, and there's, there was a lot of coverage in the papers over the weekend about that. So as we have been seeing a lot recently, there were leaks about the carbon budget. Yes. So not leaks in roofs like we saw in the supermarket in Australia. Um, but the... Sunday Business Post caught sight of some of the targets that are likely to be included. Yeah, so this leak is sort of indicating what kind of cuts are going to happen in different sectors in Ireland in the next 10 years. So do you want to talk us through what, what was contained in that document? 
Yes, well, so, and we, we are very used to these days, these kites being flown before things are published, but it looks like the electricity sector will have to do the most heavy lifting and they are supposed to cut emissions by 70 to 80 percent. Transport and housing have ranges of 45 to 55 percent cuts and agriculture, which is currently our largest emitting sector, um, they face an emissions cut of 21 to 30 percent. Yeah, so you can see fairly clearly that housing, transport and industry are kind of around that 50%. And then because agriculture aren't hitting that 50%, then we've more to do in the electricity sector, which is not going to be straightforward, as you'll hear a little later on in the episode when I chat to Daniel Murray about data centers and our electricity supply here. Um, And it does, it's obviously we need to hit these targets and we need to make these targets but it is does feel a bit reductionist to me that we can kind of lose a lot of the important benefits by just focusing on this number so absolutely yeah the ifa have been doing some heavy lobbying um obviously with the government and um even aren't too happy with the with the emissions cut that is um going to be proposed um But I mean, like if we were talking about emission cuts from agriculture in the context of food sovereignty and increased biodiversity um, and better money for farmers and better money for farmers, um, it will be something to be proud of and happy about and and look forward to. Well, I mean, I think the narrative needs to change on this because it's all about cuts, challenges, sacrifices that have to be made as opposed to each sector actually making a contribution and actually saying we're going to step up and show some leadership here and make a contribution to this collective target that we have. Yeah, yeah. And and to focus on how how you can make your lot better at the end of it as well. Yeah. That it's not just all sacrifice, that it's moving towards something better. It just seems like there's a, a lot of talk going on without any real plan to get us to reach these targets. And I guess that leads us into... The international scene, Anna, because COP26, the UN Climate Summit, is coming up in Glasgow at the start of November. And there's a lot of talk going on around that as well. There certainly is. You're starting to see countries ramping up their PR ahead of COP. We saw the US um, declaring that they're going to bring a huge delegation, including Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Um, they were criticized for that because everybody's like, just get your you know, climate bill passed, please, instead of showing up in Glasgow. Um, the Chinese announced a biodiversity fund that they're starting to help developing nations protect nature. They're going to contribute $230 million to that to get that started. Then you've got the UK talking about their net zero strategy um, for 2050. Again, they've been criticised because it's all about electric cars, apparently, instead of taking vehicles off the road. Uh, Another thing we've seen is a group of developing countries getting together um, to say they need more equity in the discussions, um, which seems fair enough, considering that a lot of developing countries can't even get delegates to Glasgow um, because of COVID vaccines being scarce, etc. Um, so, so there's a lot going on and you, you're definitely starting to see the PR machine um, revving up ahead of Glasgow. Absolutely. And Greta Thunberg kind of was mocking that that PR machine and, and world leaders um, for their all talk and, and their kind of fake 
commitments. I think people will recognize the blah, blah, blah speech that she gave in Milan just recently. Um, and Pope Francis as well um, came out on Twitter and was calling for, you know, a, a big system change and adopting our uh, socioeconomic models um, so that they are humanity focused, um, you know, and getting life saving vaccines to everyone in the world. Um, regardless of, of patents and intellectual property rights. So, I mean, I didn't think that Greta Thunberg and Pope Francis would be um, cut from the same cloth, but maybe they are. Well, Pope Francis is quite radical in what he was asking for and, you know, asking that governments and politicians work together for the common good and beware of listening only to the economic elite. So it's an interesting message there. Yeah, yeah. And also echoing those sentiments then was Morgan Bazilian, a new member of Ireland's Climate Change Advisory Council, who had a slogan saying to make COP boring again. Yeah, I was actually very encouraged with this. His point was that the COP should be all about doing hard, boring, detailed work to figure out how we're reducing emissions and how we're going to make plans work. And his... uh, take on it was that celebrities need to just find another venue to burnish their climate credentials. He thinks COP has more important work to do. Yeah, and funnily, we have had a celebrity finding a very unique place to burnish his climate credentials. Uh, William Shatner was up in space. Um, And Anna, this is kind of or not climate story, but it's almost at this stage a not not climate story. (laughs) Yeah, it started off as a not climate story because I was very struck by as William Shatner went into space last week, there was no mention of climate change. It was all about um, Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin rockets and making space a place for business. Um, And it was very striking, the lack of climate change coverage. But then William Shatner stole my thunder by going on CNN and making the climate link for us. Um, So he was interviewed by um, Chris Cuomo on CNN. And he said that as he went into space, the two minutes or so that they actually was in space, he looked into the dark void and thought, that's death. And he looked down at our planet and said, that's life. And he said, we really need to be protecting the planet that we have. And the climate crisis is the biggest crisis facing us. And we all need to be working to save the planet from climate change. Hopefully William can uh, inspire himself and some of his buddies to redistribute some of their wealth. What do you reckon? Well, Are you, you looking for a sponsorship for the podcast? Please, there, William, <laughs> sponsor me. Live long and prosperous, as <laughs> Spock used to say. Um, great. I think that is it from the newsroom for this week. You are listening to The Climate Alarm Clock, Ireland's weekly climate news podcast. And still to come, Anna explains the Paris Agreement. Kira will be back with the Irish Enviro Event Guide. We start our new sustainable business feature with Fairly and continue our collaboration with Irish Doctors for Environment. But now we're going to look in a bit more detail at a topic that's been in and around the environmental news for the last few weeks, and that's data centres and our electricity grid. We've talked a bit about data centres in the Mean Bog story, but to find out more, I spoke to Daniel Murray, political correspondent for the Sunday Business Post, and host of 5 Degrees of Change podcast. He's written extensively about data centres and our electricity grid. And in an article published in the Business Post on the 3rd of October in relation to data centres and predicted electricity shortages this winter, 
he referred to Ireland's energy policies as disjointed. So I started by asking him what he meant by that. Yeah, thanks, Dara. And, and thanks for, for having me on the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm a big fan and I'm, I'm delighted to see you guys back. Um, so basically what I was saying in that article, I, I was referring specifically to the electricity system because energy policy obviously goes much wider than our electricity system. But um, when it comes to the electricity system, there's been a, a very obvious kind of disjointed a, a approach in, in, in recent months and years. And that disjointed approach has to do with the, the two fundamentals of energy policy, supply and, and demand. So on the one hand, we're, we're talking about uh, supply and we're talking about wanting to convert ourselves towards a, a renewable electricity system and to, to decarbonize. And as part of that, we're going to see a shutting down of older, dirtier uh, fossil fuel generators. So we have co a big coal generator here in Ireland known as Money Point. You know, we used to have peat generators here. We have a lot of gas generators and we even have oil uh, uh, generators as well. And these are make up the basis of our, of our electricity system at the moment. So to move to a, a lower carbon system, we need to retire a lot of those and we need to ramp up the renewables. So wind and solar that, that are on the grid. But on the other hand, then there's the, de the demand side of things and demand is, is shooting up uh, quite dramatically. And this is understandable uh, in terms of the next decade when it comes to wanting to electrify our transport fleet or wanting to electrify our, our home heating and, and the way that that's going to, to drive demand. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the main area where we're seeing demand actually grow is from data centres or, or what we call industrial energy use, but primarily coming from, from these data centres. And over the last four years, uh, data centres have increased energy demand by around the volume of about 500,000 homes. So like a huge volume of, of demand that has grown. And in comparison with all other sectors other than data centres, uh, it, it has grown by that much, while other sectors have remained relatively flat. So we haven't seen the demand from the electrification of our society for, for climate reasons even start to take off yet. So that's what I mean when I say there's, there's kind of a, a disconnect between these two policies. On the one hand, we need decarbonisation. We need a kind of a low energy demand model as much as possible. And on the other hand, we have very much a, a government policy led growth in industrial electricity demand from these data centres, which is fueling the kind of digital economy. So just to follow up with that, Daniel, that with the increasing demand, we don't have the renewables to supply to supply all that new electricity we need. So it's making it harder for us to shut down those uh, fossil fuel uh, energy generation plants. Yeah, exactly, Dara. You, you've hit it right on the nail right on the head there. So, you know, um, the when a big report came out a couple of weeks ago from Airgrid, which is their uh, annual generation capacity statement, which looks ahead kind of at the 10 years ahead at energy demand versus energy supply. And they effectively said, um, because of the growth in data centres, but also because of, uh, of some other factors, um, we were going to see a, a mismatch between supply and demand in the next three to four years. And to plug that gap, we're going to have to get emergency gas fuel generators into the country. Um, and those effectively over the space of maybe three or four winters are going to ensure that we don't have uh, blackouts. Okay, so you've talked about unnatural growth in relation to data centres on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the government have classified data centres as strategic infrastructure. Um, what does that mean and, and what are the implications? 
Yeah, so back in, I think it was 2017, 2018, there was an amendment to the Planning and Development Act. So this is all around our kind of planning permission infrastructure in Ireland and the the process for getting planning permission. Uh, And under that amendment, data centres were designated as strategic infrastructure. Now, strategic infrastructure already exists as a designation. It happens for roads, it happens for other big infrastructural uh, projects. And basically what it allows is it's a kind of a separate process. It allows fast-tracked planning permission um, and this is so that you're able to get big infrastructural projects done done easier um, and it means that the likes of data centres once they're put into this category will be able to avoid a planning permission at the local authority stage, apply directly to on board, board Planola and therefore hopefully from their point of view have a much easier route to actually getting uh, uh, the, the infrastructure um, built. So when I hear strategic infrastructure, I think that the work that the centres are doing must be of national importance. So is the data stored there of national importance? Is it trivial stuff or or a mixture of everything? I mean, it's it's a very good question. And, and the answer to it really is we don't know. Um, and, you know, I, I, I always am... Uh, um, um, I'm reluctant to 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 come across just you know as knocking data centers the whole time because you know data centers do provide incredible services. I mean they're the backbone of the digital economy that we've all become uh, particularly used to during COVID. You know, and, and me and you right now are are talking online o- o- over a, a Zoom call. Um, but the point is is that we don't actually know uh, the divvy up of that data and how it's used. We do know that the boom in data over the last decade um, has not just been as a result of the growth in in digital services and the actual hosting of those services, but it really has to do with the collection, the storage, um, the mining, uh, and then the packaging and the sale of personal data, personal metadata, which is generated in huge volumes um, in nearly any activity that you pursue online and lots of activities that you pursue offline now as well for anybody that might have an Alexa device uh, or, or a Google uh, Home device uh, in their homes. So there is a separate debate which I don't think has been had um, and that is about how much um, of the volume of power used for these data centres is being put to, to, to a good use. That was Daniel Murray from the Sunday Business Post and I had quite an extensive chat with Daniel about data centres and other climate issues and we'll be releasing an extended version of that interview as a standalone bonus episode in the future. But right now, you are listening to the Climate Alarm Clock, Ireland's weekly climate news podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter at The Climate Alarm. If you have a story to share, a climate event to promote or would like to collaborate with us, you can also email us on climatealarmclock at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast wherever you listen. And now it's time for the Irish Enviro Event Guide with Kira Tiernan. Hello and welcome to this week's Irish Enviro Event Guide for the 25th to the 31st of October. Here at the Climate Alarm Clock, we are clearly news nerds and passionate about climate change coverage. And if you are too, the Dublin Climate Action Regional Office and DCU are hosting an online event asking, are the media doing their job on climate change? 
This event is taking place on the 28th of October at 6pm. Register on eventbrite.ie. Art and performance has been recognised as playing a significant role in protecting the environment through creating social change. And there are three events taking place this week where you can get involved and tap into your creative side. In Galway, the Gort Resource Centre are hosting an art-based participatory action research workshop. If you're interested in community, art and education as a way to make social and ecological change, then this event is for you. It's taking place on Thursday the 28th from 7 to 9pm. In Cork at the YMCA on Marlborough Street, you can learn how to write and perform spoken word poetry. You'll also have the chance to experience spoken word poetry as an action against local and global injustices. This event is for young people aged 15 to 18 and takes place on Thursday evenings from 7 to 9pm. If you're in Dublin and sick of plastic like me, the National Geographic are hosting an outdoor exhibition at Harbour Plaza, Dunleary, from now until the 12th of November. The exhibition titled Planet or Plastic asks, how did we get here and how can we be part of the solution? These events are free to attend and you can register for the workshops through eventbrite.ie. The spirit of Halloween is coming to Finglas and Ballymun thanks to Dublin's Rediscovery Centre. The event takes place on Friday the 29th and is aimed at children aged 6 to 12. So as if they weren't already excited enough, you can get your kiddies into the spirit of Halloween even more with an arts and crafts workshop from 11 to 12.30 or a bat workshop from 3 to 4pm. Details at rediscoverycentre.ie forward slash events. Okay, listen up friends in Limerick. You won't want to miss Mary's Organic Garden Harvest Festival at Fitzgerald's Woodlands House Hotel. The festival is about celebrating the harvest, sharing locally grown produce and hosting a seriously overdue community catch-up. This event seems super Instagrammable. It will feature an alpaca petting zoo, a pumpkin patch and much more. Did I mention it's free? It's taking place on Saturday the 30th of October from 10am to 4pm and you can register through limerick.ie forward slash discover forward slash what's on. That's it for this week's events. Details of all the events mentioned can be found in the description of this week's episode and be sure to follow us on Instagram for a detailed roundup of these and additional unmentioned events. If you know of any events that are taking place, get in touch with us at climatealarmclock at gmail.com. Thanks, Kira. I loved that news nerd comment. If you are attending the Are the Media Doing Their Job on Climate Change event and there's a chance for, for some audience participation, feel free to tell people that you think that the team here at the Climate Alarm Clock are doing a great job on climate change. Um, still to come on this episode of the Climate Alarm Clock, we continue our collaboration with Irish Doctors for the Environment and Kira Daly kicks off our sustainable business feature. But first, I'm sure some people are going to be disappointed to hear that we have taken Anna Pringle out of the bog for this week and sending her to Paris instead. So handing over to Anna now for this week's Climate Policy Explainer. For our Policy Explainer this week, I'm looking at a landmark international agreement on climate change, the Paris Agreement. In 2015, delegates from hundreds of countries, from NGOs and from businesses, met in Paris to negotiate. 
as it started to become clear that agreement would be reached, world leaders flew in to make sure that they were seen to be there for the historic moment. Many years of international climate change law, intense negotiations and political challenges led to that moment. And so far, 195 countries have signed up to the Paris Agreement. So what's it all about? The purpose of the agreement is to hold the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit that temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. To achieve this, each country that signed the agreement commits to reducing its own carbon emissions. Countries themselves decide what their emission reduction targets will be and how they'll achieve them. These targets are called Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs, and they're the main mechanism for the achievement of the Paris Goals. The NDCs are updated every five years with the expectation that each will be more ambitious than the last. And to keep track of progress, a global stock take will happen every five years, starting in 2023. The Paris Agreement recognises that not all countries share equal responsibility for climate change. Developing countries have historically lower emissions and have fewer resources to respond to the crisis. Richer, developed countries have both more responsibility and more capacity, so they're expected to take the lead in reducing emissions and in also providing finance to developing countries. Welcomed as a landmark breakthrough by many around the world, the Paris Agreement is not without its flaws. It's been criticised for not including concrete actions and for focusing on consumption of fossil fuels rather than production. In fact, you won't find any reference to oil, gas or other fossil fuels in the agreement. But ultimately, the Paris Agreement will be judged by its effectiveness in driving emissions reductions. So far, national commitments do not add up to staying below 2 degrees. And only one country has committed to a target compatible with the 1.5 degree limit. And that's the Gambia, a developing country, not a high emitter. Most developed countries need to strengthen their targets as soon as possible. Updated commitments in the last year have narrowed the gap, but only very slightly. The Paris Agreement was signed at the 21st UN Conference of Parties, or COP21. In Glasgow, at the end of October, delegates from around the world would gather again for COP26. The objective there is to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and unite the world to tackle climate change. We'll all be watching to see how they do. That was Anna Pringle there talking about the Paris Agreement, which is of huge relevance with COP26 coming up in Glasgow in a couple of weeks' time. And I'm delighted to say that next week we will be joined by Philip Boucher-Hayes for a preview on what exactly COP is, what we're expecting to happen, and how it's going to work. And still to come on the Climate Alarm Clock, our collaboration with Irish Doctors for Environment. But first, it's time for a new feature, or sustainable business shout-out. And before we start, I think we need to explain a couple of things here. So, really importantly... We cannot buy our way out of the climate crisis. Um, Less is more when it comes to climate action and buying less and using less is almost always the best option to combat climate change. But then sometimes there are some things that we just have to buy and in these cases it's really, really good to support the businesses that go above and beyond for the planet. 
And also to say there's no paid advertising on the climate alarm clock. There are far too many examples of current affairs shows having questionable, polluting advertisers. And we're moving as far away from that as we possibly can. So instead, we reach out to businesses that we believe in, ask them to speak with us, promote them, and hope that they just give the podcast a share in return. So we're handing over to Kira Daly and our first sustainable business, Fairly. Today, I'm chatting with James Byrne, one half of the duo behind Fairly, an online sustainable lifestyle store who sell a wide variety of products, ranging from food storage items to cleaning products and toiletries to gift boxes. So James, thank you so much for joining us on the Climate Alarm Clock. Now, I know that some of the products you stock are becoming more widely available in our supermarkets. So I'd love if you could start by telling us what the difference in impact buying from Fairly makes when compared to buying from these larger businesses. Sure. Well, I suppose there's no type of buying that's not going to have um, some impact at the end of the day when we're when we're purchasing and when we're consuming, we are consuming resources. So we're trying to make our footprint as small as possible um, and we're trying to make what we do as worthwhile as possible. So in one sense, look, I would say, first of all, you know, do what works for you. Um, not everyone has the privilege to be able to shop online or to buy products that might be you know, handmade or premium or whatever it might be. So first and foremost, you have to do what works. And um, if you're buying from us versus the supermarket, you know, generally speaking, we're supporting like a, quite a big network now of small local producers. So handmade products, things like that, maybe things that aren't as easy to sell through a high volume environment. And um, also the likes of our packaging. So we do everything um, plastic free. So we're 100% plastic free in terms of our packaging. Everything everything we send out to you is in packaging that's recyclable or compostable, biodegradable. Also, our, our suppliers, that ethos flows through to our suppliers. So we don't stock products that come in plastic packaging um, or that come in unnecessary plastic packaging. We do have bits and pieces um, of plastic that currently can't be removed from the product. But that should be like an absolutely tiny percentage of what we do. Um, so I guess you're getting to support those kind of supp- suppliers. You're getting to support that network. And for us, what we're trying to do as well is, I suppose, set a bit of an example that businesses can be run this way, um, that you don't have to have all that plastic, that you can support small, and that you can be small. Like one of our ethoses has been to grow a sustainable business that is small by design. Um, we don't have an ambition to take over the world or to go into space as 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 it may be um and i think we should be trying to cultivate those kind of networks when we can absolutely i love that i love that great okay so james the all-important question how do people order from fairly well, we're pretty much all an online business, although you can click and collect from us here in Kilcullen. So the place to go is our website, which is fairly.ie. That's F-A-E-R-L-Y.ie. Or say hello to us on social, which is at this is fairly across all socials. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kira. That was Kira Daly with the sustainable business feature. If you know of any businesses that you think are doing great work for the planet and should be given a shout out here you can reach us on facebook and instagram at climate alarm clock on twitter at the climate alarm and by email on climate alarm clock at gmail.com finally on this week's episode we continue our collaboration 
with Irish Doctors for Environment, where I speak to Dr. Rachel McCann about the links between infectious diseases and the environment. And we started the chat with Rachel introducing herself. Um, my name is Rachel McCann. Uh, I've been working with Irish Doctors for the Environment for the past few years, but I'm also a trainee in infectious diseases, uh, working here in Dublin in St. Vincent's Hospital. Thanks for that, Rachel. And so we're going to be talking about zoonotic spillover, which is a term I think a lot of us have become familiar with from COVID, where we've heard how COVID came from bats. So is zoonotic spillover where a disease is found in one animal and then manages to jump to another animal? Exactly. And um, I suppose this can happen for a number of reasons. The kind of biggest factor is the proximity of different animal species. And when some animals live too closely to another, that can facilitate spread. For example, in the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, probably happened because bats, which are the carriers of the disease, had moved into new habitats because their previous forest habitats had been destroyed due to deforestation. So as you mentioned deforestation, we're starting to see the links there between zoonotic spillover and the environment. So do you want to speak a bit more on that? Yeah, I suppose as well as the proximity of animals and animal species biodiversity is also important because with loss of biodiversity you have a larger number of the same animal species living together so that can also facilitate different spread of disease it also forces animals to migrate and potentially contact other animals or people that they wouldn't previously have faced thanks for that um and staying on the topic of infectious diseases but moving away from zoonotic spillover we're seeing diseases like malaria, Lyme's disease and dengue fever already being affected by climate change. What exactly is going on there? Yeah, I suppose it's important to think about that separately because as climate and temperature changes, it has different effects. So with increased temperature change, so hotter climates, we have seen spread of dis- different diseases such as Lyme disease, as you mentioned, um, malaria and other kind of more obscure ones uh, like dengue and this thing called Vibrio parahemolyticus. And that's because these uh, vectors, so vectors is the species, usually insects, where we get bites, um, they find new areas that they can now live in because the climate is more favourable. Yeah, so on the one hand, it's clear we've got another issue to be worrying about when it comes to climate change. But then on the other hand, it's just more motivation to restore biodiversity and reduce emissions because that will actually help us to reduce the likelihood of another pandemic in the future. Absolutely. I think actually creating biodiversity and protecting it is one of the most important measures we can take. As I mentioned before, there's a not spillover. Having a rich species biodiversity helps prevent these common interactions that would lead to a spillover of one pathogen to a new species. But it also creates a healthy living ground for other animals and species to thrive. And then again, away from that, the human behaviour, you know, COVID-19 has shown us that we can take action and it can be global. And, you know, one person's action today does affect everyone else. That was Dr. Rachel McCann, and keep an eye out for an extended version of that chat, which we'll be releasing at a later date where we talk more about the COVID climate connection. And if that's of interest, then you might also like our previous podcast, The COVID Alarm Clock, where we asked if COVID could be a wake-up call to take real climate action. 
But that's it for this week. Just a reminder of the actions you can take. You can check out some of the events from our event guide, or you can have a look at Fairly's website and see if there's anything ethical you can buy. We'll be looking more and more at COP26 in the next couple of weeks and letting you know well in advance that the COP26 Coalition Ireland are organising a march for climate justice on the 6th of November at 12 o'clock at the Garden of Remembrance. There will be lots of people there from all parts of Irish society, all united in calling for real action on climate change, and I'm guessing none of whom have been to space. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter at The Climate Alarm. You can email us on climatealarmclock at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be back with the news, feature and events. Anna returns to her mean bog story and I preview COP26 with Philip Boucher-Hayes. Until then, goodbye.